The presenting sponsor of the Canny Climate Dialogues podcast is the University of Auckland's International Office, and we owe them a huge thank you for their support. The University of Auckland's International Office is proud to sponsor the Canny Climate Dialogues podcast series, and we hope to continue to make them proud with this current season and upcoming episodes. As you can imagine, New Zealand is a unique place to think about climate through the lens of their indigenous cultures. Leading the world's universities in the Times Higher Ed Global Impact Rankings for the first two years of the rankings, as we all work towards the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the international team at the University of Auckland share your concerns, including your concern about climate action and international education. The University of Auckland is answering the world's call. Welcome to the Canny Climate Dialogues podcast, the podcast at the intersection of international education and climate action. I am your host today, Kelly Davis, and today we'll be discussing the energy transition in the aviation industry with Daniel Block from IATA, the International Air Transportation Association. This is the final episode of our Travel with Canny series, which primarily consisted of episodes covering a recent initiative by members from Canny's chapter in Europe. But in today's episode, We are looking at aviation travel and the work that is being done to get airplanes off the ground more sustainably, which Daniel provides through his knowledge of the pipelines to sustainable energy sources in the aviation sector. There's still a long way to go before air travel makes less of an impact on our planet, but there's a lot of work being done to get to that point. The purpose of this episode is to remind ourselves that there are allies working on sustainability in other sectors, and that our climate action efforts don't need to, and should not, remain within our education bubbles. I had such a great time speaking with Daniel about this topic. We get very into the details about different energy sources, and I think that this will be an episode that you will want to share with your colleagues looking for a bit of hope on the air travel front, as well as with your students who might be interested in both supply chains and some of the science behind sustainable aviation fuels. But before we jump into the conversation, some quick housekeeping. First, I'd like to give the friendly reminder to subscribe to our podcast feed wherever it is that you lend your ears to the Canny Climate Dialogues. And if you're one of our friends who listens on Apple Podcasts, let us know how you like the show with a friendly rating. Second, if you missed Canny's Climate Action Week at the end of November last year, head over to our website to view the recordings of the sessions. For those of you in Europe, Travel with Canny is back this year, working to get international educators to EIE in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, by sustainable transport. Check out the new webpage on Canny's website under the Take Action tab. For those of you in the United States, there have been whispers of people interested in exploring options for sustainable travel to NAFSA in D.C. this May. If you are interested, start the conversation with your peers and head to Travel with Canny, the Travel with Canny LinkedIn group. And now, thank you, Daniel Block, for joining us from IATA, and welcome, Canny listeners, to this episode of the Canny Climate Dialogues. Happy New Year. Happy 2023. It is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Block to the Canny Climate Dialogues today. Daniel is the Assistant Manager of Sustainable Aviation Fuel at IATA, uh, which is the International Air Transportation Association. And we're bringing Daniel on the show today as the final segment of the Travel with Canny series to tell us what we can be hopeful about in the aviation industry, because we often discuss kind of this the harsh reality that airplanes emit a lot of emissions <laughs> into the air. Uh, We can't ignore this, but at the same time, the aviation industry, as Daniel is going to tell us, is making movements towards a more sustainable future as well, which is good. Um, So we're going to start off, though, by learning a little bit about you, Daniel. So tell us, um, you work in the aviation industry, 
but what is your relationship with international education? Yeah, thanks very much, Kelly. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be able to have this discussion with you today. Um, Starting off with uh, international education, I've got a very close relationship and, and connection with this. So I obviously grew up in Australia um, for the first 18 years of my life. Um, but I suppose with a view to trying to pursue my broader career in, in commercial aviation, um, I really wanted to push myself out of the comfort zone a little bit and, and engage myself with a wider and more international audience. And to that extent, I actually went and pursued my tertiary educations in Spain at IE University, which is a business school uh, located out of Madrid and Segovia, just north of uh, Madrid there. And quite frankly, it was um, truly a, an extraordinarily beneficial and holistic educational experience. The ability to engage um, with people well beyond just my own culture um, and provide those lenses into other sets of um, cultural nuances, histories, socioeconomic demographics was a great privilege. And I think really set myself up for a more rounded perspective entering into my career in aviation. And, you know, naturally it also brings other synergies like being able to develop second languages um, coming from a place like Australia where we're very much focused on, on English and, and quite isolated relative to, uh, to other countries, particularly other um, countries with different language profiles. Um, it really gave me a, a kick up the backside, if you will, to, uh, to get a second language on board as well, um, which obviously provides some new scope to understand cultures more, more holistically as well. So in the end, I, I couldn't be more grateful and appreciative for my time in the international education space. I'm a, a really strong advocate for this and, and can't recommend high enough to students considering this sort of opportunity and experience. And I think that that's going to be music to our listeners' ears. I think that one of the goals that we have as educators is to make sure that the students who we teach, no matter what industry they end up in, are taking what they learn through international education and also through a, a more sustainable, sustainably focused education into those other industries. So you're kind of the perfect example for this, which is great. Um, but let's go ahead and talk about IATA and what is the purpose of IATA? What is your role there? And what are IATA's goals when it comes to the transition to sustainable energy use? Sure. So IATA or the International Air Transport Association is in effect the global trade body for the, uh, for the airline industries. And to that extent, we represent about, I think it's 85% of global traffic that equates to over 300 airlines now, uh, stretching all four corners. Um, and so to that extent, what we're trying to do at a holistic level is to really represent um, the interests of the sector by engaging with all of our member airlines. Um, and this spans well beyond just uh, environment and sustainability. We, we look into a range of different topics that, that really um, transcend the entire sector. And that's from operational and safety uh, right through to the likes of uh, airport slot negotiations to tracking just the wider economics at a macro level um, as well for the industry. So we, we really do take a very broad lens view of representing the wider interests uh, of our member airlines. Um, in the context of environment and sustainability, um, you know, this is becoming 
one of the highest priority um, levers, if you will, within the organization. Clearly, it's becoming one of the foremost topics, not just within aviation, but I'd say within our um, within our political slash economic um, water supply. And uh, to that extent, what we're really trying to do is promote this concept of net zero 2050 um, as this sort of broader goal to be working towards um, as part of our wider decarbonisation efforts. Um, so in terms of IATA, we champion this role and actually had it uh, ratified through our member airlines back in 2021. So what that was, was an industry commitment to achieving net zero 2050. Um, and for what it's worth, this is quite a unique achievement. There is no other industry that actually has banded together at a global level to commit to such an ambitious goal. Um, and so IATA in its representative capacity basically banded together the interests and working together with the member airlines helped to achieve um, this long-term goal uh, for us to now work towards as a reference point. That's super interesting and makes me think we could have a whole other session in terms of how that collaboration almost worked and how they how what kind of some of the instigators were so that everybody agreed. But for another time, um, what is your role in all of this? And I think this coincides nicely to a question that we ask all of our guests, which is, what is your climate story? How did you end up in this position today? Sure. Well, in the context of my role, so obviously sustainable aviation fuels a very, very broad topic, and we can very much go over that um, throughout our chat today. Um, but my role very much looks into the biofuels and the um, and the renewable fuels context. And what I'll explain later on is sustainable aviation fuel is really actually an umbrella term. I think sometimes we fall victim mm -hmm. of painting it as one thing, but couldn't be further from the truth. We produce sustainable aviation fuel from a number of different sources. And if you want to dichotomize it, you can sort of split it into your biofuels. Um, and on the flip side, you've got your e-fuels or your electric fuels, which are going to be powered by, well, you guessed it, electricity, but that might also come from renewables itself, such as green hydrogen as your key input. Um, to that extent, within the biofuels context, which is where I look into, my key sort of scope within that is really being a bit of a reference point between the airlines and the producers. And to do that effectively, I need to be tracking the developments at a global level of sustainable aviation fuel and, and biofuels, which over the next 10 to 15 years will be our exclusive supply of sustainable aviation fuel. So what I'm looking for is what regions of the world are ramping up their capacity, what are the feedstock and the input they're using to produce that fuel, and what production pathways that will align with as well. As, as you may or may not know, in the airline industry, we currently have seven certified technological pathways to produce sustainable aviation fuel, and each of these marry up with slightly different feedstocks and inputs. And of course, this has an impact on your life cycle analysis of just how sustainable your fuels are. Obviously, it has a cost implication. Some of the technology in the biorefining infrastructure is ready to go. Others still need to be developed. And so we're trying to really keep tabs on what that looks like and profile that at a regional level. Um, again, we'll, we'll probably get into this at a bit more of a deeper level throughout the chat, but what we can already see um, at this point in time is we have quite centralized locations 
of, um, of where our supply sources are. So part of the role is to then also promote the decentralization of these sustainable aviation fuel supply chains um, and making sure that each region has access and proximity to these sources. And so part of the role as well is then engaging with governments and, and regional bodies to give them the understanding and the tools to, to acknowledge the challenges, to connect them with the airline industry players of relevance, um, and to really be that central stakeholder um, sort of connector, if you will. On the flip side, there's also then the airline facing side of the remit. So for example, one of the big tasks that I've been conducting lately is a SAF readiness index among our, our member airlines. And what we're trying to gauge there is sort of where the airlines stand currently from an internal resource and capabilities perspective. And then as the industry body, being able to acknowledge, well, okay, they're looking pretty good on this front, but we're seeing consistencies of trends at a global or regional level where they might need a bit of top up or a bit of a boost from either, you know, a training and resource perspective, a data perspective, um, or even actual practical tools um, that we can offer as a, as a product to the industry as well. So it's, uh, it's quite a, again, quite a wide range, uh, but my remit very much falls into that advanced biofuel space. Um, we've got other experts internally that look at the e-fuels, um, which we can viably expect to come online in call it the mid-2030s. Um, I, I know it's quite a long-winded answer, but then I, I know you've also asked me about the climate story. Yes, I mean, it's uh, everything that you just said, I'm so excited to dig in further to the questions that we have coming up. Um, so yes, please tell us about your climate story and then we'll get nitty gritty with <laughs> everything yeah. that you were kind of overviewing there. No, absolutely. Um, look, I, I was very privileged to grow up in, in quite a remarkable part of the world. I think anyone that knows me personally knows that I probably can't go an hour without boasting and, and mentioning the beauties of Western Australia. Um, which is home to, you know, thousands of kilometres of absolute pristine coastlines, vast, um, really untouched areas of, of forest land, um, red ochre earth gorges and, and, you know, from south to north, the, the biodiversity and actual, you know, range of, um, of environments that we're exposed to is, is a great privilege. And it is an area that is relatively underpopulated as well due to, um, you know, varying reasons um, across, across the board. And, and to that extent, it, it means that it really is home to some very precious, um, some very precious environments and, and places. And I think as a result of growing up, in that kind of environment, you, you're very much prone to, to appreciating it. it it's, um, it's one of those things, even as a child, um, you know, you, you try not to take for granted the fact that every day you're, you're going down to pristine beaches and, and snorkeling on, off, the, off the beach and, and having, you know, vast areas of, of healthy coral systems and reef systems, healthy fisheries, clean air, clean waterways. And I think as I grew up, and, and clearly the, the you know the the, the stories and, and the narrative around climate change started to mature I think I, I I took a really pragmatic approach in understanding that I wanted to play some sort of role um, within really fostering and improving the situation um, particularly as a means um, particularly I suppose initially within the context of my own backyard of just saying 
we can't possibly lose this. We, we can't risk, um, you know, having these precious environments taken away from us, um, you know, because they, they make up really the, the beauty of the lifestyle that, that I grew up with. And I suppose over time, that's just extrapolated into a global context. Um, I suppose the other thing that, that I really grew up appreciating as, as an Australian is, is understanding the role of, of the Indigenous Australians, the Aborigines. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was fortunate to, to grow up and, and actually have some very sort of close experiences with, with some of the um, some of the native title owners uh, of various parts of Western Australia, particularly up in the far northwest of the state um, in a region called the Kimberley. And being able to listen and learn from, you know, these native title owners and, and the Aborigine people of Australia, you can get a very strong sense of their connection with the earth. I think, in my opinion, a far deeper understanding that, that we have as, um, as Westerners, um, you know, that have obviously only come into the country in the past 200 years, compared to this society that has had tens of thousands of years, which has developed this very, very robust, deep understanding of their environment. And I think there's been so much to learn from them in terms of what we can do to sort of drive our, um, our own climate change initiatives um, forward. And I'm happy to say that I have, in fact, been involved in some of those projects where the Indigenous Australians have in many ways been driving the projects ahead that we've then been trying to transmit into, for example, you know, carbon capture and carbon sequestration projects. Um, but I'm digressing a little bit. To sort of tie that all into um, my aviation background, I mean, you know, on, on my end, I was always the, the little six-year-old boy at the airport with his face smudged up against the window, looking up in pure amazement at, at this, um, you know, big machine and, you know, big aggregation of metal taking off. And I think, um, Probably not much has changed, to be to be perfectly honest. I'm still the guy, up, you know, that's looking out in amazement every day. But I think again that it's hard not to feel the responsibility um, of wanting to essentially still promote everything that aviation offers our globalized society, and it is a very essential, you know, it's an essential piece of the puzzle in you know, facilitating global supply chains, trade, tourism, and just connecting people. It's a very wholesome, um, you know, aspect to our life. I think we all have travel stories that we look back with great fondness and, and really makes our lives richer, but we can't compromise on the sustainability piece. And we recognise that we are, you know, a big emitter and, you know, our emissions are tough to abate. So there's a lot of work to be done. So I think it was a natural synergy for me to combine, you know, my appreciation for the natural environment, having grown up in these areas that you really do want to take that sort of hard and fast responsibility of trying to maintain and preserve whilst also, you know, <laughs> marrying that up with a pure love of travel and, and aviation. So I think in the end, um, it was almost an inevitable combination for me to pursue. Yeah, I mean, what you were saying throughout, kind of sharing both pieces of the story, I, I just got this sense of wonder that originated kind of in, in your physical environment and also other people who you were interacting with. And then also this big machine that allowed you to get to places where you could have more interactions with other people. Um in, in different contexts with different histories. So 
wonder is kind of feels like it's at the base of that, uh, which is really wonderful. And there was a lot of conversation in there also about kind of knowledge, um, which I think is very relevant for something like education. Um, but we are going to now talk about uh, some, some of these more fact pieces um, about aviation. We're going to start with the hard question, which you kind of ended with, which is, what is the contribution of the aviation sector to global emissions right now? Sure. So the current understanding is aviation emits about two and a half percent of global emissions from a CO2 standpoint. Um, there's obviously a range of different factors that go into measuring that. And um, I suppose also the, the thing to consider is, is also factoring in the growth over time and, and understanding that, you know, whilst actually aviation has managed to really effectively decarbonize relative to say aircraft that were operating 50 years ago i think the figure and don't don't take this as absolute fact but i remember seeing something to the extent of 70 to 80 percent emission reduction factor of current aircraft relative to those flying 50 years ago and so that's an enormous leap forward but on the flip side, we've seen a vast increase in just the absolute number of people flying. So again, it's this fine line or balancing act between making sure that aviation is affordable and accessible to the masses, because this is ultimately what we're trying to achieve, particularly at IATA, but also ensuring that you know, those relative levels of emissions are still maintaining low. So again, the other point to make about two and a half percent is I think often that's less than what people think. This is by no means, however, an excuse for us to bury our heads in the sand and say, look, you know, it's two and a half percent. We're a tough sector to abate. Um, you know, that that's absolutely not the viewpoint of the aviation industry, to be really clear. I think there is an absolute sense that we're a part of a much broader energy transition story across, you know, particularly say transportation, which might represent up to maybe 10, 15% of the wider emissions um, pie chart, if you will. And, you know, we're playing a, a really central and critical role in that broader story, well beyond just the backyard of aviation itself. Um, but yeah, aviation is largely understood to emit about two and a half percent of global emissions. Yeah, I actually, I had myself thought it was a much larger number until a friend pointed it out to me that it was much smaller than I'd been thinking um, a couple months ago. Uh, so, uh, but it's, I bet you're right in that it's, it, it isn't an, an excuse. And it's, I think, I, I find it very reassuring that the aviation industry takes it on. Um, I think that, you know, probably, I'm sure there are other industries that are as well. Um, it sets an example for kind of catalyzing that movement. So uh, you talked about this a little bit earlier, um, and but let's clarify then what sustainable aviation fuels are. And I did try to look this up before I wrote this question because I thought, okay, I don't want to come off as having not done my homework. But to me, it seemed like maybe there was a difference uh, between SAFs and renewable energy sources, but it sounds like based on what you said, renewable energy sources are actually just a part of SAFs. Yeah, I'd, I'd almost put it. I'd almost put it in the other way. Um, sustainable aviation fuel, in our current form, considering that we are deriving our sustainable aviation fuel from biofuel production, is a function of renewable mm. energy sources or renewable fuel. 
So for example, and this is very much the same for a traditional refinery that we've used in previous years for oil and crude and and uh, indeed Jet, Jet A1 kerosene, in the context of sustainable aviation fuel, we are deriving a percentage fraction of sustainable aviation fuel from a biorefinery plant. So these biorefineries have a product slate. So there might be four or five co-products produced from a given biorefinery. Let's say it has a million tonnes of capacity per year, of which on average it might say have a 30% fraction of renewable diesel production, there's a percentage of biogas production, there's a percentage of naphtha production, and of course then there's also a percentage of sustainable aviation fuel. Now, the challenge here, and I'll, I'll get into this into more detail um, as we go on, is that those fractions and percentages is A, up to the biorefiner, B, volatile on a daily basis, and C, more often than not, left to market forces. So in the end, the producers are regularly going to put higher and optimised fractions around the biofuel that has the highest margins. Mm. And the, the tough thing for sustainable aviation fuel is as of those co-products, it regularly has the highest opportunity cost because it is the most expensive at this point in time to produce. And so that's a challenge for us to overcome. But yeah, to, to sort of make the point clear is that biofuel, sustainable aviation fuel is a function of your overall refining capacity or biorefining capacity at this point in time. It becomes slightly different when we get into the electric fuel space. But again, this is something that we're going to see over the next, say, 10 to 15 years emerge. Um, you know, it's still very much in its R&D phase. Mm. And so that seems like then sustainable aviation fuel is, is just a specific aviation term for this is what we are using to fuel our yeah. planes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. And again, still within the context of biofuel, sustainable aviation fuel, this is also still very much an umbrella term because we have seven different pathways within biofuels mm. that then allow us to produce SAF made from different feedstocks. Um, so, oh, yeah, wow. so there's, there's layers to it, as you can see. You know, I forgot to warn everyone. I've never been very good at science. So this is, I'm going, okay, this is a lot to keep track of. <laughs> <laughs> I do apologize. It is, uh, hope I'm simplifying it ready enough. You are, you know, for sure. Um, I just, I'm going, okay, I should, I should be really taking notes here. Um, but you, you mentioned some of those, some of those challenges and that's the next question is we're trying to get big planes, these big metal machines carrying a bunch of people into the air, flying at high velocities. Um, what what are those challenges for finding suitable energy that can make that feasible? Yeah, so I think, um, I think I've already touched upon it, but, but to sort of go into a bit more depth, I think the, the first and foremost sort of critical piece of the puzzle is our feedstock. So when I talk about feedstock, I'm talking about the inputs that help us produce the energy to then utilize as, as a SAF. And this feedstock is redirecting demand away from fossil-based sources and into biogenic sources. And what that ultimately does is help to close the carbon circle. The challenges within that is A, you know, these can be more expensive depending on the feedstock you're looking for, particularly the ones that we're using now. And B, there's high levels of competition between different sectors 
particularly within the transportation uh, world. And so you very much have to lean on um, the lens of comparative advantages and trying to allocate resources that best fit or are most fit for purpose for the industry relative to one another. Um, and I think the third challenge is then actually the, the actual systematic processes in place to, to aggregate some of these sources. Um, I, I don't know if this is the right time now to sort of break down the different types of feedstock that we are currently using and we're seeing as, as emerging as well. But each of those then have their own challenges to, uh, to sort of unpack, again, naming the fact that we have all these different pathways to produce sustainable aviation fuel, but I'll, I'll be led by you on that one. Yeah, yeah, you said there were seven. I'm thinking let's maybe start with two and see how we how we do. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. I mean, or for, we can name all of them and then no, yeah, no, we'll, no. we'll see how it goes. I think for simplification purposes, because of, of those seven, there's probably three broader uh, pathways that that can be sort of identified as the major ones that we're looking into in in their current form there's certainly more pathways as well that are on the way to be developed and the good thing about those is that they're going to be able to help us unlock new feedstock options mm. and ultimately bring down the cost of production so currently though the the main three um, processes and I'm happy to, to pass through some resources that help explain them a little bit better or in potentially more detail. But on the one hand, we've got our most common pathway at this point in time called he uh, the HEFA pathway, which stands for the hydro treatment of fatty acids and esters. And effectively what we're doing there is taking anything with a fat content, the lipid content, which we're able to then basically hydro treat and turn into sustainable aviation fuel. Now, the most common sources of feedstock for this are things like used cooking oil and inedible animal fat tallow. So effectively what, you, what you've got there consistent among those two feedstock is that these aren't you know, being produced specifically for sustainable aviation fuel. What you're actually taking is, is the waste of these products that have been used for other purposes and then in their waste form would otherwise be sent for landfill, incineration um, or burying. And as a result, you're abating the emissions associated with those processes. If you incinerate it, clearly there's a carbon emission effect, but if you bury it, there's even the risk of then methane emission effect, mm. which can be up to 30 times more potent than a CO2 equivalent um, emission. And so that's what makes the process sustainable and effectively repurposing these wastes into fuels. And in the process, you're then basically diverging your uh, demand that would otherwise have been going to fossil sources away into these waste-based sources. The challenge with these, as you can probably intuitively think about like used cooking oil or, or the, the inedible fats of animals that are being um, you know, produced for, for food production, is that there is just a natural limitation to how much can be possibly produced. Um, and that clearly then develops a market for these wastes and then inflates the price. Mm. So nowadays there are high prices associated with these wastes that were once considered, you know, very much a, a low value concept. So the trick for us is to make sure that on the one hand, we can utilize these, 
but on the other hand, as well, leverage and promote other feedstocks that align um, with the two pathways that I'm going to talk about now. On the one hand, you've got the, and this might be a popular one among students, the alcohol to jet pathway, where essentially we're taking bioethanol um, that has been fermented from, from different uh, feedstock with sugar contents and turning that bioethanol into jet. And also then a gasification process called fissiotrope. Um, and that's able to take things like forestry residues and agricultural waste from the harvest process. And I'm, I, I want to stress this point about it being harvesting processes rather than the likes of deforestation. I'll explain that mm. in a moment. But the nice thing about these two pathways is that they are able to take low value waste where markets really haven't been developed. On the one hand, you can take the likes of municipal solid waste. So visualize the landfill in a city where you've got all, you know, a, this built up tip that has an emission factor with a combination of carbon, methane, and even um, nitrous oxide as well, which again, have very, very potent levels of emission well beyond carbon dioxide. And these are, these are really tough challenges for, for governments to deal with. You know, they often don't have the resources to, uh, to deal with these landfills themselves. They're, they're just sort of left. But all of a sudden, we're able to help systematically aggregate these resources, abate the emissions of these resources having otherwise been sent for burying or incineration, and again, repurposing them for the sake of sustainable aviation fuel. But the further stacking effect to these ones is that in this process of aggregating these wastes, you then have the potential to then recultivate and regenerate on that land that's otherwise set for landfill. So you get even further stacking effects with the potential of reforestation and regrowth, yielding crops for farmers, restoring biodiversity. And you can see there's, there's what we call these, these stacking effect opportunities that sort of sit there. So it's again, a really exciting opportunity. And again, relative to these used cooking oils and fats and oils and greases that we're using, they start at a much lower cost base. So all of a sudden we can start now moving increasingly into output coming from the alcohol to jet or the, um, pardon me, the, the Fisher-Trope uh, production pathway, um, which will help diversify our portfolio. I suppose the reason why mm -hmm. It hasn't happened in such large scales at this point in time is because the heifer refineries are far quicker to sort of get online as they mimic more traditional refineries that we already have in place, whereas there's been more investment and time needed to scale up these other pathways which have different infrastructure based requirements, but I think in the next couple of years we're going to see the first of their kind at a, at a commercial scale come online and I think that's going to see a, a really significant boon in, um, in not just sustainable aviation fuel production but sustainable aviation fuel production which have really high potentially the highest sustainability impact that we've ever seen well beyond just carbon and uh, carbon emission reduction but methane and nitrous oxide as well and in that process you're then recultivating land, you're developing new supply chains, you're creating wealth generation. And, and this is why I always come back to it. It's, it's actually a much bigger story than just aviation where we're telling a far bigger picture. We're just a, a small piece of the puzzle. We're going to have to have you back in about five years and go, okay, 
where is it at now? Let's see. <laughs> was the prediction was the prediction true? It's uh, but that was great. Um, I it, I think that the diversification aspect is so interesting because as somebody who doesn't study kind of the the mechanisms, if you will, of of how we become more sustainable or we utilize renewable energy sources. Um, it's it, there are just things I hadn't thought of or maybe had heard about, but thought, how realistic is this? And and to hear that it's it's that it's out there and um, it's picking up steam uh, is is really interesting. It's fascinating. Um, it's very cool. So it's it sounds like within that we've got these the, those are the solutions or the possible sources of energies that are being focused on right now. Just a few examples of those seven different pipelines. Um, so I'm curious to know if the the overall aviation industry, I mean, I don't think it's an if here, but uh, there's a, a set of goals, I'm assuming, for energy transition. And I, what I am curious to know is what that timeline looks like, what those goals are, how they align in, in our future. Yeah, most most definitely. So touching back on, on the Net Zero 2050 commitment, which IATA drove and, and got signed through uh, in October 2021, the really promising and, and exciting recent development is we've then had that passed on to the United Nations body for aviation called ICAO, or the International Civil Aviation Organization. And through their General Assembly, which takes place every three years, we were able to ratify at a multinational level government support through the acceptance of this long-term aspirational goal for aviation, again, decarbonizing via net zero 2050. It's hard to overstate <laughs> the challenge of getting, I think it was over 190 member states, country, national governments to align and agree to this goal. So this was a landmark agreement and outcome for the aviation sector that even at a symbolic level is critical because what it shows is that we've got both the industry support and now the government backing to really drive this goal ahead. And what's clear is that sustainable aviation fuel is going to be the critical driver. I think the general understanding from a carbon, abate, carbon emission abatement perspective is if you take the 100% supply chain, 65% of the goal within the context of carbon emission abatement will come from sustainable aviation fuel utilization. And so as a result, it's very clear now with the government what needs to be done and what needs to be driven. So from an actual quantitative metric perspective, what that looks like currently from, a, from an output perspective by 2050 is something to the effect of 350 million tonnes of sustainable aviation fuel. I mean, it, it's very hard to, to visualise or, or make that number tangible, but I suppose from a relative standpoint in terms of where we currently sit this year, we're currently producing somewhere to the effect of 250 to 350,000 tonnes. So 200, call it 300,000 tonnes relative to 350 million tonnes by 2050. Now that seems a long way off and don't get me wrong, it is. But even within the next 10 years, and, and this is the way you have to approach any big project, you have to break it down into blocks, into periods. 
over the next 10 years or, or even out to 2030, we think we can viably get ourselves to about 24 million tonnes of sustainable aviation fuel output by 2030. And this would be a really strong indicator of the momentum and progress that's taking place, a part of not just aviation, but also renewable fuel. Because remember, our SAF output is always a function of our renewable fuel output. So if we're growing, invariably other sources of renewable fuels will also be growing as well. And we're seeing that capacity come online. Again, part of my mandate is to, is to follow and track this. And in the next four years alone, we're going to see something like about three or four operating producers to what could be over 70. And so this is a really exciting development. Um, and I think this will only continue to build as particularly we begin to diversify our production pathways, leverage new feedstock, um, and, and more and more government support comes in and, and backs it up. So ultimately, again, it's net zero 2050, which looks like about 350 million tonnes of sustainable aviation fuel production, um, but we'll break it down. And I think goal number one for 2030 is to hit somewhere within that vicinity of about 24 million tonnes of sustainable aviation fuel output um, to that point in time. And Whilst there's a long way to go, I think there's a lot of buoyancy that this can be achieved. That's great. I, I mean, I think the global commitment just really is impressive. Um, and then the next question is really about uh, what are kind of some of the challenges to the, that timeline and those predictions. Maybe it has to do with you get a commitment from all these governments, but what does that mean about actually meeting kind of the committed goals Perhaps there are other sort of obstacles that uh, are potentially in the way of, of meeting those time marks. But what do, what do you kind of foresee? Yeah, I, I think um, ultimately it, it comes down to, to the point I was making before about there is a lot of competition for feedstock mm -hmm. um, and ultimately uh, renewable fuel output. Now, as long as we are competing against these other fuel sources, where we are battling market forces, if you will. And so to that extent, I think one of the biggest challenges is not necessarily whether there's going to be enough biorefining capacity. It's actually whether we're deriving enough sustainable aviation fuel from that biorefining capacity. And this probably requires government intervention because in its simplest forms, renewable diesel, which is probably the largest competitor to SAF, out, to SAF output, Renewable diesel can sell for a higher price on the market these days than SAF, yet can be produced for a lower cost. And without digressing too far into this discussion, there's probably lower sustainability criteria on the actual feedstock that are being used in the road transport space relative to aviation, which I think is fast on the way to having really quite a rigid set of principles um, on to what feedstocks can and can't be used. I'm sure you've seen um, in your studies that, you know, certain uh, renewable fuels have been derived from the likes of palm oil uh, or, or canola and, and what they call was rapeseed. And, and the challenge with these, um, you know, virgin vegetable oils and, and the likes is that whilst they might be able to achieve an emission reduction factor, they can actually be quite detrimental to soil profiles, to biodiversity. It can cause deforestation, particularly in parts of the world where you're finding native rainforests being cut down 
to then plant these homogenous based palm trees to then derive the source for your palm oil based um, renewable fuels. And so the challenge for aviation is, you know, we need to ramp up, but we need to ramp up with the highest integrity on sustainability. And if we're taking more of a leadership role in that integrity side relative to other um, industries, which is invariably from an economics perspective going to help these other industries ramp up faster, you know, you're almost robbing Peter to pay Paul. And somehow, again, I think we're going to need government intervention to step in to help reduce the opportunity cost of producing one tonne of SAF relative to, say, one tonne of renewable diesel. Um, and so to that extent, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead too far, but for example, we've seen policy initiatives come out of the USA, like the Inflation Reduction Act. And within that, there was an enormous climate commitment and a specific commitment to the sustainable aviation fuel producers. They called it the SAF Blenders Tax Credit, where in effect, they were offering between $1.25 and $1.75 tax credits for every gallon of SAF produced that could hit a minimum threshold of a 50% emission reduction factor, which equated to $1.25. And then for every incremental percentage of emission reduction factor achieved associated with that renewable fuel or sustainable aviation fuel, an additional cent of tax credit would come up. Now, this was just for sustainable aviation fuel. And again, with that financial incentive there in place, that actively works to reduce the opportunity cost of producing sustainable aviation fuel, which is exactly what we need to see. And now the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The USA clearly outranks any other individual country for the most amount of sustainable aviation fuel projects coming online both now and over the next five years. Um, and so really, you know, this is what we're trying to advocate for at an IATA level, because a lot of governments are pursuing policies on the demand side, which mandate a specific level of SAF to be uplifted from airports used by airlines, where then punitive measures that are, you know, really hard hitting financial measures are placed on airlines that are unable to meet those mandates. The trouble is if those demand side mandates are there in absence of supply side policies that help reduce the cost, you're going to have airlines fighting over a very limited amount of expensive sustainable aviation fuel. And you've got to remember, these airlines are coming out of COVID. So they're in many cases still struggling to keep the lights on, dare I say. You know, they're under heavy financial pressure. Um, trying to reset their books to, to keep themselves in, in the black or, or not too far in debt. And so it's already tough enough to afford sustainable aviation fuel. So to then basically further increase, um, you know, the challenges of procuring SAF, um, you know, through policy lenses that don't address the supply side matter, you, you're going to shoot yourselves in the foot in effect. So this is why we're very strong at IATA about um, promoting the dual balance of having both demand and supply side policies to, to really push SAF ahead. I'll have to admit that I wasn't expecting something so positive to come out of the US in terms of climate related energy <laughs> or policies, <laughs> given some of our recent history. But um, that is, yeah, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense, kind of having some government regulation to come in to really, yeah, I, I mean, it's great that that there in the aviation industry, there are those principles being put in place, but not every industry. Um, and I think here lies the challenge, maybe even not even every country, right, is going to necessarily uh, uphold those 
principles with kind of yeah definitely and I think the other challenge is that not every government is going to have the financial means of putting such extensive financial support behind but again you know I'd say by the same token not every country has the aviation industry size of the USA either so it's all going to balance out I think Mm. and again I as a really interesting point I think as well given the state of current affairs we, we certainly acknowledge the situation in in Ukraine and what effect that's had on the energy independence debate certainly here in Europe you know gas and heating prices are through the roof and that's a product of low supply and so naturally now it's actually forcing countries that probably hadn't entered the energy transition space as actively um as others, it's forcing them to start considering, well, how can I develop my own local source of energy to uphold our country's um, energy independence? And naturally, they, they sort of have to turn to, um, to, to renewable energy, because if they haven't got their local source of supply sorted, it's probably because they don't have your local abundance of oil and gas and fossil sources. But the beautiful thing is, as you can probably rightfully work out, is that all of the feedstock that I've been talking about today can be found in abundance in probably every country. I mean, everyone is waste. Everyone is landfill. Everyone has, um, you know, residues from from harvest cycles, be they forestry or agricultural in nature. It's just a matter of actually putting in place the systematic processes to aggregate, to find the infrastructure or to find the nearest infrastructure that's viable to, to set up. Um, so, you know, whilst there are certainly challenges from a country to country perspective, it's funny how there is a fast uh, convergence of the sustainability and energy transition narrative and energy independence. And that has in many ways been catalyzed and fast tracked through through the conflict in, in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kind of a, a sense of urgency um, and necessity. Well, Daniel, I'm curious to know, do you think that education and maybe even international education have a role to play in in what's going on here oh uh, an enormous role it it can't be again it can't be overstated um you know what what we're seeing is a fast need for people specialized in this area across commercial technical and operational levels to come and drive the broader energy transition story ahead. Again, this isn't necessarily tied to just aviation either. Um, And in the context of education, I think the the really compelling piece is to paint the broader picture. Um, And there's some very solid principles that sort of lay at its foundation. And that starts with the circular economy. I saw a statistic online the other day that that spoke about the fact that 90% of the waste-based economy produced globally speaking is not circular. So to to really break that down, that means in effect, 10% of the waste, only 10% that we produce globally is repurposed and used for energy transition or, or somehow repurposed into, you know, a functional use. The rest sent for landfill, incineration, burn um you know uh, tips burying you you name it and whilst that's an unfortunately low problem uh sorry low number that problem has to be seen as an opportunity and if we're teaching at an international education the principles and the opportunities that lie within the circular economy context and have that mentality embedded within the mindsets of just how our wells should work 
we're going to really propel ourselves forward. So it's funny. I think it's not just even the international education level. It's actually bringing it a step back and saying, even at a primary level, we should be talking mm. about the circular economy and just having it so deeply embedded in the water supply of our thought process that we don't even think to question it. We just act upon it in that way um, because it's inherently scalable. It's inherently cost-effective and it's in abundance um, right here, right now. And the technology exists. So, you know, from there, it's then about, again, talking about where everything fits in, in terms of the broader puzzle. Again, I, I love to talk about it. It's, it's that piece of what a sustainable aviation fuel supply chain and production chain looks like and what impact that can have at the community level. You think about, you know, the idea of, of going into, say, a degraded set of farmland where, you know, farmers haven't been able to grow crops. And I'm referring now to a project I've been involved in. And all of a sudden, you, you're able to recultivate that land through the purpose, purpose, um, purposely sort of identified um, growth of, of a native tree that can actually survive the desert-like conditions in this particular instance. And all of a sudden, you're recultivating that land, you're producing um, a sustainable aviation fuel from the biomass of these energy crops that can grow in degraded soil. But the beauty of these energy crops are they will be able to recultivate the soil themselves as well through their mass growth, which will allow the farmers then to regrow crops that they otherwise haven't been able to grow again. So you're giving the farmers from virtually zero to two new revenue driving assets. From there, you've got all the climate and nature effects of reforesting an area. Plus, you're bringing back the energy in a double entendre sense to the community. You know, you, you, you're generating new jobs, new supply chains that are sustainable over a long period of time, wealth generation, and that has a very real community effect. And that's the compelling story. And you can transcend that right across the supply chain from well to wake, as we, as we mm. speak about in, in the aviation industry. And there's stories to be told right along the production chain. And I think that's the compelling part. And I think that's where international education steps in, because you can spend time on each and every one of those individual stories um, and, and use it as a tool for international development, energy independence, um, yeah, I, I think we're, we're just tipping, uh, we're, we're sort of scratching the surface in terms of where we can take this, but the opportunities are both exciting and dare I say, endless. Mm. Yeah, I can see how passionate you are about all of this, which is um, really lovely to see. And I see how it's all coming together, in, you know, growing up on the West Coast of Australia, um, thinking planes were just really amazing and cool. Uh, and then also just being really into these supply chain kind of systems. Um, so I'm seeing it all now. Uh, but so we're still not there, of course, with aviation and, and emissions. And I think that people, especially in international education, because that is a big contingent of people who are traveling oftentimes via plane um, to to go to a different place, sometimes for a short period of time, sometimes for a longer period of time. Sometimes as professionals, we go for conferences and whatnot. And so I think, and this might be also due to the, the narratives that companies have kind of put in place over the years. Um, we feel very guilty about our own personal aviation emissions. And so for those of us who 
do have to fly or um, it just, you know, it maybe it's more affordable. Maybe it's more feasible. Maybe we live on the other side of the world from our families. Do you have any interim solutions uh, that people can act on um, while kind of in the, while the SAFs are increasing in use? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, there's a, there's a number of different opportunities out there. I mean, clearly, I think, um, you know, particularly long haul aviation where the opportunities to, you know, combine rail and fly, which I think at a, at a domestic and a, and a regional level is becoming increasingly popular anyway. And we, we see that in the aviation industry partnerships between rail systems and airlines where, you know, the, the airline code will be placed on the train system. And that aligns up, say, with your long haul flight. So you might have your regional part of your itinerary based on a train and then you know your trans sorry your your trans pacific or transatlantic flight will then be taken um, on the aircraft and that that's the hard area to abate relative to say um, the options where there are viable alternatives in the context of long haul aviation though and this is really where 70 to 80% of our industry's emissions are derived where there isn't really a viable alternative i mean it's certainly a long swim uh, let alone boat um, <laughs> You know there, there are options out there so increasingly you know we we do hear a lot about carbon offsetting and this is a contentious issue um but to be really clear the aviation industry i dare say has one of the most robust set of criteria in terms of what it passes as acceptable carbon offsetting um criteria uh, and to that extent we're, we're driven by the criteria set through Corsia, which is our carbon offsetting reduction scheme for international aviation um, and there are very defined guidelines um, and prerequisites that are put in place in terms of what airlines are allowed to um, to claim and, and offer customers um, by way of their carbon offsets so when you see in your booking process you know, this ability to offset your personalized emissions relative to the flight that you're going to be on, um, which marries up with the type of aircraft, the distance, etc. You can take real confidence that these projects that have been identified are high in impact. Because at the end of the day, I think people can't visualize it all or struggle to visualize it all. They just think it's just planting a tree. It goes much further than that. And there's very strong requirements on additionality and broader sustainability requirements than just carbon removal or carbon offsetting. The other point though, is that within the context of this carbon offsetting concept, which is another umbrella term, you're seeing a more expensive, but arguably you know, more innovative um, concepts coming through as well, like direct air capture, where you're physically removing carbon from the atmosphere. So carbon capture technology, which again is, is scaling up rapidly um, and is proving to be a new solution to actually directly capture the carbon from the atmosphere and, and store it. Um, and so more airlines are offering that as an option as well beyond just your carbon offset projects. And then there's also solutions now through airlines where they're offering passengers to effectively book and claim um, you know, their own level of SAF for that particular flight. So what that is there is you, you almost mentally have to think about disaggregating the physical SAF. As I was mentioning, there, there's a very centralized supply of, of where you can find these SAFs. Um, and so, you, uh, and so you, you disaggregate the physical SAF 
from the environmental benefits of the SAF. So effectively, you as a customer are increasingly going to have the option to purchase X litres of SAF for your flight, where you basically fund the procurement of that amount of that quantity of SAF that will then be put into the global fuel supply system. Because remember, at the end of the day, it almost doesn't matter who flies the SAF. The point is, it's actually the production of that SAF wherever it's taking place, where the carbon abatement or reduction has taken place. Because it's the closing of the carbon cycle through the production chain that makes sustainable aviation fuel viable. So there are increasing amount of options for passengers now to, to actually offset um, and, and reduce the impact of their own personal footprint, undoubtedly. Okay, great. That's great to know all those tips. Um, that's something I'm certainly going to be keeping an eye out for when I book my my trips back to see my family and whatnot. Um, Daniel, this has been such a really, just a really great and interesting discussion, uh, but we're we're coming up to the hour here. Um, So the question that we ask everyone at the end uh, is what is a resource that you would recommend that listeners follow or take a look at? And you mentioned earlier that you um, are able to provide some resources so that people can look a little bit more into those pipelines um, that we talked about. Um, but are there are there any resources that that strike uh, you as you know very useful or important that people should take a look at? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is any number of different um, productions and and pieces out there now around sustainable aviation fuel, which touch upon the specific topics that I've brought up today. Be that on particular feedstocks and the various benefits associated with those feedstock supply chains through their cultivation or aggregation. There's the different production pathways. There's some that are focused on specific parts of the world and various ramp up timelines. Um, I think overall, I mean, there's some great documents. Um, there's, There's a piece called Waypoint 2050 Um, which was produced by a group called ATAG, A-T-A-G. And this has a really strong global view of SAF, the challenges at a a policy level, at at an economic level, and a bit of a a roadmap in terms of that timeline and ramp up. So IATA helped facilitate um, some of the research for that project. Um, And this is iteratively developed um, every year or so. Um, so this really gives a very in-depth, up-to-date perspective on, on the various developments at a global level. Um, I can highly recommend from a feedstock perspective, um, Sky NRG's market report in, in 2021. They're a company based out of uh, Amsterdam uh, and are an excellent solutions provider in the sustainable aviation fuel space. Um, and that gives a really good outlook particularly for Europe and North America, as what are the available and viable um, feedstock options for sustainable aviation fuel production. The World Bank has also produced a very good report recently on sustainable aviation fuel. So there's any number. I mean, you, you, could, uh, you could very well spend, uh, you know, a significant amount of time reading on all the various documents that are out there, but it's all excellent information. And I, I mean, on my end, believe, you know, the more organizations that are developing, um, you know, insights for this, uh, for this topic, the better. It's a, it's a rising tide lifts all boats mentality. Um, and Intel is, is gold at the end of the day. So it's one of those ones where we really do have to band together and, and combine all the, all the brightest minds in the world on, on this task. 
Yeah, absolutely. That, that it couldn't be better said. Um, Daniel, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation and it has been a joy to have you on the Canny Climate Dialogues. Thank you very much, Kelly. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Canny Climate Dialogues. If you want to get involved with Travel with Canny, check out the LinkedIn group, Travel with Canny, all capital letters, where people traveling sustainably are sharing their itineraries and connecting with colleagues also making the choice to lower their travel emissions. You can find a link to the group in the show notes. Two quick, easy climate actions you can take today are to subscribe to and rate our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to leave a comment and let us know what you think. We'd also like to remind our listeners that Canny is a volunteer-run and led organization. If you have felt inspired by this episode today, please consider heading to our website, canny.org, and making a donation to help our operations and growth.